0: Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, public finance and public pensions. And Richard, we've got public We're back in the news of late because of some – pretty dismal financial returns recently. We can talk about that in a moment, but I want to start this way. Let's set the table. Um, there are throughout the US cities and states that are on the verge of a crisis or in some cases actually in one with their public pension systems. Obviously, some of the reasons for that are going to vary by locality. But just to start us off, in broad brushstrokes, Richard, what happened? How did we get here?
1: Well, um, it basically begins a long time ago, and to begin the story, you start with the National Labor Relations Act of 1935, and the original judgment that was made, at least at the federal level, is that public unions were a terrible mistake, uh, because the employers, that is the government, would be beholden unto the workers through the ballot box, and so you couldn't get the same kind of adversarial bargaining that you had in ordinary discussions. And so, early on, they just weren't covered. At the same time, at the state level, you always had pensions, and starting in about 1945 with a case called Kern coming out of California, uh, the question arose, when does a pension best? And the facts of this case were just ideal for a little bit of reform. There was a fellow who worked in the system for, say, 20 years, and about eight days before his pension supposed to best on retirement, they vote to strip him of it. And, you know, you could think of all sorts of ways to try to deal with that, either by statute or saying this is a bad faith, reasons having nothing to do with the competence of the man, we're not going to honor it. But, what the legislature did is it went absolutely in the opposite direction, and it announced that all pensions vest the moment somebody starts employment, so even if you could demote them and fire them, the pension rights that they begin with cannot be changed. Uh, the typical rule in every private business is that pension rights don 't even begin to accrue until you 've been there for a certain period of time. Uh, then there are two variations on this they define benefit plan, and then they define contribution plans, a much stabler system in which The workers receive a lump sum like I do under my TIAA-CREF University plan. They can invest in whatever mix of cash, equity, and debt that they want to do so, but the university or the employer is otherwise out. It turns out that they decided, by and large, in these public employment cases, to go to the defined benefit system, which said that the residual risk is on the employer. Starting in the 1960s, first at the federal level and then at the state level, all of a sudden. Uh, the rules of unionization changed and public institutions were now subject to unionization. This began at the federal level with an executive order by John Kennedy in January of 1962 and then you see a lot of state organizations doing it. So what you now do is you now have state bargaining, you've got this crazy vesting rule and what you do is you start seeing things go place. Uh, Public workers aren't supposed to strike, but it turns out often they do and more importantly is the union movement and the public sector, starts to grow magnificently and very powerfully, uh, these guys have the ability to threaten individual legislators who stand against them with a barrage of negative publicity which will drive them out of office and so you see in effect the way that these pensions start to increase. Then you just compound the problem uh, because of a number of factors. One is that the stock market doesn't cooperate um, nor does the bond market. So, you know, if whatever the standard rate was, say 8% was the usual number that you could expect on a kind of a sensible basis. In the last five or six years, you're not at 8%, you're at 2% or 3% because uh, the bond interest rate is very low and it turns out that the stock market's very uneven. Then, to make it worse, it turns out people start living longer so that the pension obligations are worth more. And then you get changes like the one in California which says, you know what, we don't want this to be two times the average salary including overtime that you earned in the last 5 years let's make that number 3 and so you've now increased this stuff by 50% by a one word change in a piece of legislation and since it's all future people in the present politically tend not to worry about it so you get a perfect storm and the bottom number today roughly speaking is you get 4.0 trillion something trillion dollars of pension obligations and 3.0 something trillion dollars assets to back it up if that So you've got a $1 trillion shortfall, but the discount rates that are used uh, essentially assume that there's a higher rate of return on your investment that is real. Uh, So what you're doing, in effect, is probably understating the total amount that's going on through a series of accounting conventions that are probably ultimately not defensible.
0: Give us a sense of the places that are in real trouble here.
1: Well, I start with Chicago and Illinois, where I am, and every major system at the state and at the city of Chicago level is essentially underwater, under a system of accrual accounting. Uh, they tried the legislation to patch this up a little bit um, uh, before Rana was there, but there's an extremely liberal Supreme Court here. And what they announced essentially is that this vested right doctrine is absolutely impenetrable And so when they tried to reform the health care piece of the whole uh, retirement packages, it was struck down by the legislation. I did a little work in Sandy, got involved in my little marginal way, a very intelligent uh um, uh, ordinance passed by the city, which tried to cut back on the pensions, which were causing them a several trillion dollar loss, I think it was. I mean, you yeah, big numbers. Uh, and a uh, trial judge struck this down because of the best right doctrine from the Kern case that I talked about. And what they were trying to do was to essentially say, we're going to cut back on pensions pro rata with other kinds of services, because otherwise, if Pensions get a first priority. It turns out current policemen, current teachers, current libraries, current recreational stuff, current parks, they all take it on the bottom. And this thing failed. Uh, Chuck Reed, who is an admiral mayor, is term limited out of office, and his successor, whose name I can't even remember, uh, strikes a settlement which postpones the day of reckoning a little bit before. Uh, Other California cities are in the same situation. New York has some troubles, but generally thought to be less serious. Let's go down this state by state. There's virtually no place which is fully funded if you use accurate assumptions. So uh, what you're looking at here is a very substantial overhang. At the same time, in places like Chicago, Chicago and so forth, where the ability to raise real estate taxes is in fact very, very dicey because as the taxes go up, the value of the property goes down, which means you have to lower the base for the assessment, which means that you have to raise the rate again, and after a while the market simply stagnates. So there just aren't a lot of options in this particular situation unless and until you can unlock the pensions and say these things were created through undue union influence, and what we have to do is to scale them back, say on the Of the San Jose ordinance?
0: And that seems like the big question here because it's obviously less politically difficult, which is not to say not difficult, for places that have pension problems to change the way that they structure their benefits for new employees, but pick, picking this lock, I mean, how would you how would you go about making that case? I guess you'd have to do it through the courts, Richard, when it comes to the obligations that these places have already accrued.
1: Well, let's just take it two parts at a time. First, the new pension stuff, or the new employees, and then going through the courts. Uh, the new stuff is perfectly grandiose, but it's useless. Uh, you have to remember you're taking right. people on today, and their pension obligations are only going to mature 30 years from now. And And so they're not going to basically reduce any of the problems that you have for immediate payouts, which are associated with lousy rates of return on the one hand or extra long rates of life in the pension state of the world. So it's not going to change anything except on the accrual basis, only modestly at the beginning. Uh, The second problem that you have is that you can put these reforms into place, but it's another thing to keep them. So now what you do is these people are around for 10 years and somebody says, isn't it outrageous that the people who are ahead of them get X, Y, and Z and these guys only get X and Y but not Z? We really have to gross them up. And why will that happen? Because the people who were outside the system and had no political influence when this thing was put into place are now very much inside the system. They are gaining power by the year as they move up in seniority and they're going to have influence over the way in which the programs go. So I don't even think that the reforms in any realistic sense should be regarded as sustainable. Then you go to the courts, and this is a a federalism nightmare of the worst order. It is ironic that when you look at private contracts and ask whether or not they can be impaired by government, the basic rule that everybody has is you guys want to change something, even retroactively you can do it, and you can do it in the pension area. So there are a number of cases from the mid-1980s in which people joined the Pension Benefit Corporation, and they were told they had an absolute right to leave if they didn't like what was going on. Uh, then they look at the numbers, they're very bad, and these people decide to pull out. And what happens is retroactively they change the contract, and they tell all these firms, we'll let you leave, but only if you contribute upon exit the amount of money that you would have had to pay if you had stayed in the particular firm. And it goes to the Supreme Court, and it's a unanimous decision on both due process and takings ground, that you're perfectly entitled to do these things, because when anybody does business with the government, they can perfectly foresee uh, that these changes are going to take place, and retroactivity changes really don't matter if you're only talking about future rights to withdraw. When you get to the pensions that are created by this rather dubious political process, all of a sudden you try to change them, everything is a vested right. And in Illinois, it's done under the state constitution, so that it's extremely difficult to do this out. Uh, Trying to get the state courts to do this, I think, is utterly impossible. The question is, can you do it through the Supremes? Well, when you had five Republicans and four Democrats, it was a long shot. The moment you reverse the numbers, I think it's a virtual impossibility that they will do it. But I think the arguments are really rather strong. So uh, the case that you could make, for example, in connection with the San Jose plan, is if you look at the particular statute that created these things, it said that we reserve the right to alter and amend the pension obligations that we provide, but not to revoke. And somebody can say, well, the reason we have that power to alter and amend is to take into account future circumstances which make the program unviable. And then you ask whether or not the amendments that you put into place are in good faith in effort to balance the budget or in a bad faith way designed to give disproportionate grief uh, to retirees. And these programs were immaculately well designed. I wish I could claim credit for them. It's a model ordinance. (laughs) And since it's a model ordinance, it's therefore unconstitutional, whereas all this other seemingly stuff that takes place is constitutional, so my argument is that the state constitution is preempted by the federal constitution, and under the federal constitution what happens is the state constitutional law doctrine impairs the obligation ie removes the ability of the city to exercise its rights to alter and amend this is rather convoluted to the ordinary mind and it's even difficult for myself to get my head around it uh, but it's the best shot you have and I would say as a kind of predictive matter it 's not very Very good. So I don't see any way out of the logjam. And if you look at what happens in states like Illinois, uh, the beat just goes on. Uh, we have a desperate physical situation here, you know, fiscal situation here. And what we do is Mike Madigan, who runs the assembly with an iron hand, is pushing for AFSCME, the, the American Union dealing with county, municipal and state workers uh, to give them some kind of benefits. Round is on the other side of this, blocking everything. I regard him as Horatio at the gate. And then they have to work deal after deal on an ad hoc basis so that schools can open up in the fall. There is no willingness to back down on the part of the union movement. And, you know, my view is, I've said it a long time, Calvin Coolidge had it right. Uh, you cannot run public unions and hope to keep your sanity in dealing with a government. It may not be five or ten years, but we are now in payback time. Illinois is the classic illustration of this. And so, given the current judicial requirement, I'm going to tell you, Troy, there is no exit to the current situation under the current law.
0: So this is generally thought of as something of a left versus right issue, the idea being there that the the left likes the public sector. They like the unions. They want them to be well-compensated, that the right wants sort of a leaner, more efficient government. But there have been some prominent democrats, people like Chuck Reed who you mentioned, the former mayor of San Jose. Great guy. Or Gina Raimondo who is now the governor of Rhode Island but she took action on this when she was the treasurer. They've pushed for reform on this, and it's not just for democrats – The math, it's also the menace of this idea of budgeting – crowd out. Why don't you explain that concept for our listeners?
1: Well, look, I mean, what happens is this is not a case in which there are rich guys on one side of the transaction and poor guys on the other. Uh, That's a question of what's the size of the tax base, and uh, San Jose has enough housing ordinances in place locally there to make sure that they won't get a real estate growth, and they haven't had any in the last 10 or 12 years, which exacerbates this problem. But the two competitors in this particular case are current services for kindergarten and children on the one side and pensions for retirees on the other. And if you're a Democrat and you want to see that the safety net is kept in place uh, for the vulnerable members of society, you cannot in good conscience sort a system of penance, of pensions, which essentially allows a certain set of workers to have Benefits which far exceed those of any other class of workers in any other class of industry. And so what you have is a kind of a strange situation in which guys who are in the private labor union, who've seen themselves rocked by pension problems, bankruptcies and failures, look with resentment at public workers who have tenure type jobs with no risk and a rate of return with lower risk that is far higher than on the other side so you do see some democratic bleed over and you know I thought Chuck Creed with whom I met a couple of times and worked a completely admirable human being in the way in which he started to approach this I did not think of this as a kind of a republican issue as such I thought it was an issue of civil parity and civic responsibility and you know one can easily see the demagogues on the other side taking it But these are the same people who take after charter schools as if there is some kind of heinous blot on the public school system, when in fact they're the only salvation from a public school monopoly. So it's the same dubious cast of characters. You know, my position has always been... Uh, that, you know, if you're in the swamps of Florida in 1910 with segregation is a the union may be the only way you get your wages. But the moment you start moving into organized society, unions don't become a defensive device to make sure that people aren't screwed over. They become a device to make sure that you could expropriate from an organized mass of taxpayers all sorts of benefits which union workers in principle should not get. And I just would mention that if you look at the Scott Walker reforms from about five or six years, years ago, they've worked even better than expected. This is not a case in which you're doing pipe dreams on the reform issue. This is a case where it's worth fighting the Wisconsin fight because the returns are completely positive up and down the line.
0: All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting defining ideas at Hoover.org And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.